1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Last year, there was a great worry that the annual flu season would compound the COVID crisis. But in the end, there were few outbreaks. And it's for that reason that this year's flu season could be far worse even than in pre-COVID times. And there's nothing particularly wrong with the word like. But plenty of purists hate it when it shows up in, like, the wrong part of a sentence. Take a closer look, though. Linguistically, that like is doing plenty of interesting work. First up, though. Big wigs are flying in, the streets of midtown Manhattan are clogged, and snazzy restaurants near the United Nations headquarters are all booked up. Nature is healing, or international diplomacy is anyway. Last time the UN's General Assembly happened in person, then-President Donald Trump left attendees without much of the usual warm, cooperative feeling. The future does not belong to globalists. The future belongs to patriots. Things are different now. On Tuesday, President Joe Biden used his first outing at UNGA, as insiders know it, to call for global unity.
0: We're not seeking, say it again, we are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks.
1: Mr. Biden will find a more welcoming audience than Mr. Trump did, but there's still a yawning credibility gap he has to close, given the shine that's been taken off America's reputation recently.
0: Today, the French took an unprecedented action. They recalled their ambassador to the United States. The Afghans back. scrambling to get out, clinging to the side of a U.S. military plane. In so and many ways, the so pandemic has really highlighted the chasm between the haves and the have-nots. And now
1: In his opening remarks to the conference, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres hinted
2: that A breakdown in trust is leading to a breakdown in values. Promises, after all, are worthless if people do not see results in their daily lives. Failure to deliver creates space for some of the darkest impulses of humanity.
1: Now that he's safely headed to a second term, Mr. Guterres will need to throw more of the UN's weight around to deliver on the promises that are sure to spill out of UNGA.
2: Well, I think this year's Unger matters particularly because, first of all, there's a new American president, so there's a lot of curiosity around that.
1: Daniel Franklin is The Economist's executive and diplomatic editor.
2: It's a partial, at least, return to the gatherings of old, which were big jamborees clogging up New York after a, a year when it was an entirely virtual summit. And there's a lot on the world's plate. This is the world's leaders coming together to tackle a very big agenda, Three Cs in particular, climate, COVID, and conflict.
1: So tell me more about those three Cs. What are world leaders doing to address
2: them? Climate change is very much front and centre, particularly with the COP26 summit coming up shortly in Glasgow. So it's an opportunity there for some countries to come up with bigger commitments than they'd previously done. There's a sort of pressure to do that. Uh, Joe Biden kind of set a tone in his speech to the General Assembly promising to provide more for climate finance for developing countries, for example. So that's one of the main themes. But COVID as well, perhaps the global problem uh, most immediately at the moment, and the summit that was convened on the fringes of the General Assembly, by President Biden was an attempt to sort of kickstart more pledges of vaccines and money for a more equitable division of of vaccines with the aim of having 70% of the world vaccinated by the end of next year. And then I think again the background to this year's General Assembly is the fresh memories of the chaos in Kabul and a very dire humanitarian situation that is now confronting that country and there are other places where conflict is threatening to have terrible, devastating consequences. This is, again, a chance for such problems to be aired and for an attempt to get the resources and attention focused on the biggest trouble spots of the world. But
1: given the situation in Afghanistan and America's involvement in it, President Biden has quite a task to unite leaders on on matters of humanitarian concern.
2: Yes, and I think more broadly, there's a a question of credibility for President Biden that he has to establish. One knew that he was going to set a very different Tone from his predecessor, President Trump, and the sorts of things he said in his speech that uh, he was moving from relentless war after 20 years in Afghanistan to relentless diplomacy and that uh, the world needed to work together as never before.
0: The United States is ready to work with any nation that steps up and pursues peaceful resolution to shared challenges, even if we have intense disagreements in other areas. Because we'll all suffer the consequences of our failure. We do not come together
2: to address... These are very un-Trumpian messages. But then many of America's allies even are wanting to see what this actually translates into in practice. And, And Afghanistan, as you say, has been a bruising experience. And just now, more recently, we've had the new alliance between America, Australia and The United Kingdom on submarines, which has seriously offended the French, who had, as a result, their own very large submarine contract cancelled with Australia and felt very left out of it all. It was all kept secret from them. So there's a lot of credibility that Biden has to prove, not just with countries like China and Russia, America's rivals, you like, but also amongst his own allies.
1: And aside from the three Cs you mentioned um, and, and President Biden trying to reset America's diplomatic agenda, what, what else has happened? Do you expect to happen at the meeting?
2: Well, it's always interesting to see what the leaders of other main countries say. And in particular, China, Xi Jinping didn't come in person, but he did make a commitment not to finance coal outside China. So that's another notch up on the climate front. Then there are the the side meetings, which I think are interesting. We've already seen, for example, Boris Johnson in the White House, but also the first in-person meeting of the so-called Quad. That's uh, Australia, Japan, the United States and India.
1: And and what's your take on the basis of how things have gone, how they've gone, in fact, in the past uh, couple of years in terms of the UN's standing and its, and its ability to, to unite people and, and move the world ahead?
2: It's been a very frustrating time, I think, for the United Nations generally. It was meant to be throwing a, a very big birthday celebration last year, its 75th anniversary, and of course, that couldn't happen because of COVID. It's objectively extremely difficult for the UN when the world's great powers are at loggerheads, as they have been, particularly between China, Russia on the one side and America and its allies on the other, and even those allies are now divided. So it's a very tricky time to be making real concerted progress on the big global issues. That's a frustration. We've seen now that uh, Antonio Guterres has, has got a second, will have a second term. He was elected unopposed in the summer. So he'll have another five-year term. And I think there's a question of what he hopes to achieve with that. He'll have a big emphasis on climate. One of the criticisms of Guterres is that he's perhaps been too cautious particularly on human rights, but also in intervening using the full weight of the UN's moral authority and its means at its disposal in conflict areas as well. Could he take more risks? And perhaps that'll be one interesting thing to watch, whether now that he doesn't have to worry about the support from the major powers for a second term, whether he allows himself to be a little bit more daring on the global stage. Thanks for your time, Daniel. Thank you, Jason.
1: As the Northern Hemisphere approached winter last year, scientists feared a deadly wave of the flu alongside COVID-19. They called it the Twindemic. It's when the flu meets COVID-19. No, thank you. In the end, the Twindemic never materialized. In fact, there was hardly any flu around at all. A year on, and that same fear is back. And if anything, it runs deeper this time.
2: The modeling that was done for our report suggests that Depending on the scenarios, you could get up to sort of twice the amount of transmission of a normal year.
1: Dame Anne Johnson is a professor of epidemiology and president of Britain's Academy of Medical Sciences. Her team has been working on forecasts for the months ahead, and she spoke to Babbage, our sister show on science and technology, earlier this week.
2: If you get more transmission combined with a strain that causes a lot of problems or there's relatively little immunity to then that could cause a significant flu season this year.
1: More flu means additional strain on already stretched healthcare systems around the world, at the same time that COVID-19 cases are still troublingly high.
3: In the Northern Hemisphere, we're approaching the winter months. And generally speaking, what happens is respiratory syncytial virus, rhinovirus, colds, flu, all of these things tend to surge. And of course, we've still got COVID-19 in the mix of all of that.
1: Alec Jha is a science correspondent at The Economist.
3: Last year was really interesting. Because of all the non-pharmaceutical interventions, in other words, social distancing, mask wearing, etc., people around the world were saved from a season of flu. But the coming winter, 2021, things are going to be very different. And we think the risks for infections and outbreaks are going to be much higher.
1: Why would those risks be higher
3: now? Well, there's an obvious one, which is that many of the restrictions for COVID-19 have just been lifted. So people are not required to wear masks in many places. There's mixing indoors going on, people are going back to the offices. Also, because we didn't have the flu last year, many people just didn't interact with the virus at all. So their immune systems have maybe forgotten about the flu. And so it means that their immune systems are going to be not prepared uh, this coming winter. And of course, then you've got the small population but a significant one, very small children, babies, kids under two, many of them won't have encountered any flu viruses at all. So they've got no immunity at all.
1: But this is exactly why there are influenza vaccine programs. Does that not come to our rescue again?
3: Yes, you're right. In general, flu vaccines are about 50 or 60 or 70 percent effective against preventing disease. So that's not quite as good as the COVID-19 vaccines, but they're pretty good. And There's a specific way that they're made which makes them slightly less effective, which is that you have to try and guess six months in advance which flu viruses are going to be circulating in your part of the world. So every February, the World Health Organization meets, looks at what's been circulating flu-wise in the southern hemisphere, because what's circulating in the southern hemisphere will probably turn up in the northern hemisphere six months later. And then in the six months hence, the vaccine manufacturers will grow and purify and manufacture and distribute hundreds of millions of vaccine doses. Now, what they hope is that those vaccines that they've made will match the flu viruses that eventually end up circulating. And often that's the case. Sometimes it isn't. And why is that? The thing about the flu virus is it mutates a lot. Much, much more than SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. And that's why these vaccines have to be tweaked every year. And there's always a little bit of a risk that the flu vaccines that you make, six months later, something else has emerged and isn't covered by the flu vaccines. The other issue we've got with the flu vaccines that are about to be distributed around the Northern Hemisphere now is that because there was so little flu last year then there's just that much less data to work out what the most important viruses are. And so the risk that there's a mismatch between the vaccine and the actually circulating virus is just a little bit bigger.
1: So there's plenty of reason to believe that the flu vaccines that are on their way to arms are are going to be less effective this year. And as you say, meanwhile, COVID-19 is still spreading around. What's to be done?
3: There are a few things that I think people can do. First of all, get your flu vaccine. Normally, flu vaccines are targeted towards vulnerable populations of so pregnant women, the elderly and other vulnerable categories. But I think that many places around the world are trying to expand the groups getting the vaccine, including children as well. Secondly, what doctors want this winter, more than anything else, is a way to tell the difference between people infected with flu and people infected with COVID-19. So COVID-19 testing has come a long way since the SARS-CoV-2 virus was discovered. And it's now available everywhere in many Western countries very quickly. Whereas flu testing is possible, but it's not done in the rapid way that we're familiar with with COVID-19. So doctors want rapid testing or multiplex testing where you take one throat swab and you can test for many different viruses, because if you can identify people with flu, you can give them antivirals that help them to get over that disease much more quickly. So more information is all good. Finally, this is something for all of us to do. Although restrictions like mask wearing might not be legally enforceable anymore, although indoor gatherings might be allowed now, for this winter, when there's this chance of so many epidemics happening, maybe it's a good idea just to keep those interventions going just for one more winter. So you say
1: that the technology for for testing has really come a long way in, in what is really a very short period of time, but we're speaking about vaccine development, flu vaccine development, that does seem sort of stuck a little bit in the past. Is there not a technological frontier there too?
3: We've seen with COVID-19 that a couple of new technologies emerged for vaccines that have been proving to be incredibly successful. So the mRNA, messenger RNA vaccines produced by Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna, they've now been given to hundreds of millions of people around the world. They've been proven to be safe and very effective. And the amazing thing about them is that although it's taken a long time to get to this point, they're actually relatively straightforward to make and tweak. And they can be made much, much more quickly than current flu vaccines. Pfizer, Moderna, a vaccine manufacturer called Securis, which is one of the largest in the world, they're all looking at messenger RNA flu vaccines. And if they can get them to work, and you know, fingers crossed, there should be no real reason why not, then you can imagine these sorts of things come into force in a couple of years. And the good thing about them is they're quick to make. And if a new strain, a worrying strain of flu emerges, then they can be tweaked within months to create new vaccines. And so that is an exciting frontier, something that we've learned from COVID-19 that will definitely help the much more long-term problem of influenza.
1: Alec, thank you very much for joining us.
3: You're very welcome, Jason.
1: You can hear more from Dame Anne Johnson in Babbage, wherever podcast transmission rates are high. These days, the word like isn't much liked. It's like derided. The bias against it goes back a fair bit. Already by 1995, it was a key part of the parlance for Dippy Beverly Hills teenagers depicted in the film Clueless.
0: But it's like when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? I said RSVP because it was a sit down dinner. But people came that like did not RSVP. So I was like totally buggin'.
1: To many ears, the word and its like crazy frequency in speech is a sign that the speaker is lacking in some way. To a linguist, though, it's a word that's doing a lot more work than you might think.
0: The word like has very old roots. It goes back to an Old Norse borrowing into English. Lane Green writes
1: Johnson, our column on language.
0: But in terms of our modern usage, the 1980s is really the key decade in which the word we know as like emerged. And what is it that happened in the 80s? Two things happened. First, we get what's called the quotative like, as in something like, well, she was like, you can't do that. And I'm like, yes, I can. And she's like, no, you can't. And I'm like, yes, I can. And this usage kind of beat out another competitor, which was the use of goes in those phrases. She goes, you can't do that. And I go, yes, I can. And she goes, no, you can't. And I go, yes, I can. So like kind of won this competition and that quotative use is now pretty much everywhere and it's pretty uncomplicated linguistically. But more interestingly, out of the same period in the 80s, you get what's called a discourse particle in linguistics from the word like. And what's a discourse particle? Well, so discourse markers more generally are things that sort of tell you where you are in the discourse. They're structural, so you can say things like first and second and third You can make a turn with something like admittedly or nevertheless. All those kind of give you extra information about what's being said, either the structure or how the speaker thinks about it. And the particles are those weird little words that don't fit into other categories like adverbs. Like in this use is not really obviously an adverb. It's more like oh or um uh, or some of those other words that are kind of hard to classify in their grammatical structure. And so one of the uses of like as a discourse particle is exactly what the grouches say it is, which is that it signals a little bit of uncertainty on the part of the speaker. So if you say it's like five miles away, that means it's approximately five miles away.
1: So like the main purpose here is is using it as as a means of signaling that uncertainty.
0: Well, the main purpose there, but like does lots of other things as well. And I think this is where the critics miss the richness, honestly, of the word. It does lots of different things. So for example... You can say, she's like about to break up with him. That is a way of signaling that the information that's about to show up is a little bit uh, covert or it's a little bit unwelcome, a little bit hard to say. But you can also introduce a whole sentence with "is like. You can say, they're hammering on the walls all the time over there. And it's like, I can't even do my homework. And so
1: you reckon the people who who write off the word like and, and its users are missing these
0: more like subtle uses. Yes, I'd say so. I mean, I think the most common criticism is that it's meaningless. It's just filler used by people who don't know what they want to say. I think it's a kind of selective snobbery, really. After all, people have all kinds of ways to fill pauses or buy themselves time or use little discourse particles and sometimes overuse them. So is another one that goes in this category. People hate it when they hear so at the beginning when somebody says, so the thing you have to know is uh, that's really unpopular. Even things like, well, or now, or indeed, these things have the same function. They're sort of discourse particles or discourse markers as well. They just are more respectable. They're said by the kind of person who maybe is a Don at Oxford or a radio host. And they have a prestige, but they really do the same thing that like does. And in a general
1: sense, we should, we should like revise our,
0: our dismissiveness about it. I think we should at least look at why we are so dismissive of it. I think it goes to the sources of like, people associated primarily with young people, uh, with women. I think some of the examples I've given in kind of parroting the like here should make it clear that it's very stereotypically associated with young women and particularly maybe Americans. And in America, it would be very much associated with what used to be called valley girls, the young women and girls of the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. So... We should realize that like does a lot of the same things that words like now or well do, but it's associated with people that we tend to, well, dislike in a way. And we should at least be a little more careful with our criticism and maybe introspect a little bit, if I may, verb and adjective there. And, and again, examine why we just like like. Lane,
1: thanks very much for your time. This has been like totally informative. Jason, thank you very much. <laughs> That's four. Four
0: questions I threw
1: in a like. I don't know how many
0: you clocked. I th- I was counting. I was counting. I hope the smile came across in my voice over here. Very well done.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review and you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or